Welcome to Aston Means Business, a podcast from Aston Business School. My name's Steve Dyson, and I'm a journalist who's interviewing some of the UK's top business academics every month here at Aston. Our third podcast is all about how a happy and healthy staff can help businesses and organisations to greater success and higher profits. To explore this, I'll be talking to Vladislaw Rivkin. He's a senior lecturer in the Work and Organisation Department at Aston Business School. He researches how employees and organisations can improve employees' well-being. Hello to you, Vlad. Hello, Steve. Thanks for having me. No problems at all. It's a delight to speak to you. There's been a huge increase in, in awareness of mental health and well-being on the business agenda in recent years, hasn't there? Yeah, yeah, indeed. So, so uh, if we look at the statistics today... Uh, basically, uh, we are talking about around 600,000 employees who suffer from impairments in mental health and well-being, such as, for example, depression, anxiety. Uh, we are talking about 12.8 million workdays lost due to mental health. Uh, and in a recent survey, around 44% of, of employees said that work has a has an impact on their health and well-being and the impact is negative. So half of the workforce uh, is uh, saying that that uh, work has a negative impact on their mental health. And those figures you gave, those are in the UK? Exactly, yes. So 600,000 people have some effects of of, of poor mental health or uh, lower than wanted well-being in the workplace. So so with uh, these 600,000 people, we are actually talking about clinically diagnosed mental health impairments. So it's not even what they think, it's what the doctor has said. Exactly. So we are talking uh, about people with with major depression, uh, about people who who basically can't get up, uh, get out of bed in the morning, uh, about people who have issues with controlling their impulses uh, or people who are anxious to go to work, like properly anxious. So what causes this in a nutshell? What causes this unhappiness at work? Yeah, so, so the idea is that, as I said before, the world of work has changed tremendously. Uh, whereas I think at uh, the turn of the century, we, come, uh, we came from a more manufacturing uh, oriented uh, work environment. The work environments in today's world are very strongly service oriented. Uh, and the issue with that is that, that the demands associated with this type of work are different than the demands associated with manufacturing. So before that, the most prevalent uh, work-related health issues were uh, musculoskeletal diseases, so classical back pain. And we still have a lot of people who suffer from back pain at work, but but due to the newer demands, the the most prevalent causes for uh, work-related ill health have uh, shifted to psychological diseases. Okay, and and th- that psychological disease, what 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 brings that on? I mean, you know, what causes someone um, in the service industry to be unhappy? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so so the point is that uh, the work demands we we look at, we call them emotional labor. 
So there's this one central work demand we look at. And emotional labor uh, reflects a demand where people have to show emotions they don't really experience at work. So for example, if, if and, and this also applies to academia, so if we are holding a lecture nowadays, students expect us to be engaging to, to uh, elicit positive emotions. Uh, and in most cases, they don't care whether uh, the lecturer had maybe a conflict with her or her su his supervisor before, uh, whether uh, there might be family conflicts, whether uh, the lecturer has experienced something recently which, which uh, may, have, uh, um, may have basically uh, initiated a bad mood. And I guess, like you say, that, that transfers into the area of restaurants and bars and health services. Uh, we as a public, we almost expect a cheerful nurse or a cheerful barman or a waiter who's got a smile on his face, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you, you can see it uh, especially around Christmas. Uh, I think if you if you experience any service, you expect the the delivery of the service to to uh, express certain emotions. But we're also talking about professions where you may have to be uh, serious or considerate. So, for example, as a policeman, you mm. need to to express certain emotions. Uh, you can't be cheerful and give someone a <laughs> fine for something, uh, or even in in the hospital. Professions, you can't be cheerful and tell somebody that he or she has cancer. So, so we are talking about both spectrums of emotions. So, showing positive and negative emotions. And the issue with emotional labor is actually uh, that if we are in the mood, uh, or if we genuinely feel the emotion which is required at work, then it's not an issue to show the emotion. We just authentically show the emotion we have. The issue with emotional labor, however, is if we don't experience the emotion. So for example, we are in a sad mood but need to be cheery, or we are in a cheery mood but need to be sad. And this is what we call emotional dissonance. So the conflict between genuinely experienced emotions and actually uh, needed or expressed emotions. And this is what causes impaired health and well-being. So I think, of course, there always have been service industries, uh, but um, I think uh, in, the, uh, in the last 10 years, service has become the predominant driving factor of the economy. Uh, whereas manufacturing due to reduced labor costs uh, went into other countries and, and this is what, what caused also the increase in impaired health and well-being. And on top of that, uh, there is another major demand which uh, we uh, refer to as self-control demands. And the idea of self-control demands is that uh, in their work people need to control impulses, so this also applies to some degree to non-service professions. Uh, however, where you have to, to basically consider words you're saying or put up a certain appearance, uh, resisting distractions, so all of us are getting uh, quite a lot of emails every day. 
uh, and trying to ignore them while working uh, on, on uh, specific tasks. Uh, and especially in that direction, it's not only emails, it's social media, Twitter, Facebook, uh, maybe uh, your children calling during <laughs> the workday. Uh, so, so trying not to resist distractions, but focus on, on work. And the final self-control demand is overcoming inner resistances, so having to engage in tasks uh, which are inherently not pleasant. So, for example, in today's uh, uh, clinical or in, in today's uh, health occupations, uh, nurses have to do a lot of documentation which they yes. uh, may not have done in earlier times. And I imagine that somebody who, who uh, decides to become a nurse uh, expects to deal a lot more with patients than with documentations. Mm. And therefore, do, doing the documentation uh, is a thing they need to overcome the inner resistance <laughs> to yeah. do. The issue with emotional labor and self-control demands is that these demands pile up during the day. Uh, so imagine you start your day in the morning by preparing your children for school and then your children have arguments, so you try to resolve arguments and this necessitates self-control. After that you arrive at work uh, and then maybe you have a, to talk with a difficult customer so, so to resolve issues of a difficult customer, show certain emotions. Again, you're required to exert self-control. Later in the day, maybe your supervisor asks you to do something you have to do over time, maybe miss some appointments again you require self-control to resolve this. And by the end of the day, you come home and then you see the dishes in the kitchen are not washed. <laughs> and what happens? Yeah. You argue with your partner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the idea of self-control is that, uh, or, or our, our academic idea of self-control is, that different acts of self-control rely on a common resource. So it doesn't matter whether I have to control emotions or to resist distractions or to do something I don't like to do. So everything basically drains my uh, regulatory resources and once this resource is basically drained or depleted and we call the state ego depletion people are less able to exert self-control so they are not good at self-control anymore and that's for example why in hospitals towards the end of the day uh, the uh, attendance or, or uh, the diligence to wash hands reduces by 40% Ah. because people don't have the self-control anymore to, to engage in these tasks. The tank has been emptied. Mm, exactly. Yeah. So w with all those causes in mind, and uh, th those, there's multiple causes, and the self-control bank and all these kind of things going on in people's minds without them even noticing it, mm. but they are at various stages becoming uh, less ready to react, less ready to be happy when they need to be, mm. less... Exactly. Basically, they're, they're, they're feeling their, their well-being is, is suffering. Okay. So, what so it's draining, basically. Yeah. You're talking about, about resource drain, and at some point you don't have the resources anymore to react, and suddenly you become rude towards a customer who, who maybe has some claims, and this has quite a drastic impact on work performance as well. Yeah. Or if you think about hospitals, if nurses don't wash their hands and spread viruses, then obviously this has a negative impact on... on uh, patient. What can the average employee 
do for themselves to help stop this from happening? Yeah, so so uh, we started this research first by looking at, at the impact of self-control demands over and above other stressors. And what we've shown is that basically self-control demands and emotional labor constitute unique stressors uh, which, which predict health and well-being. And after that, and this we have done this for the last eight, seven, eight years, we looked at different resilience factors. So, so as you as you asked, what can people do themselves, mm. and what can organizations do to prevent uh, the negative consequences of such demands? Especially because in a lot of occupations, self-control demands and emotional labor they can't be reduced. No. So, so, it's so just to, to, to focus on the the, the, the person themselves and the individual. What, what, what are things that they can do? So we have looked, for example, at sleep. So mm -hmm. we know that, for example, sleep is, is uh, quite a strong precursor or sleep uh, replenishes regulatory resources. So, so you probably know it from, from anecdotal experience where you have a good sleep after uh, maybe feeling drained or depleted the night before and suddenly in the morning things look differently. Always uh, looks better. <laughs> exactly. Things look better. Unless you've had a bad sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you have a bad sleep. So, so in one of our studies, we actually shown that, for example, sleep quality uh, prevents the adverse effects or the negative effects of, of self-control demands. And even more interesting, uh, we, we have seen that uh, the beneficial effects or the positive effects of sleep uh, quality uh, are stronger for individuals with high trait self-control. Okay. So what does this mean? So, so normally people differentiate in their ability for self-control. Some people are very good at it. So if you think about maybe famous people such as Gandhi, who are very controlled, very reserved, consider their language very well. And some people are very bad at self-control, like, for example, Donald Trump, <laughs> who sees a tweet and then suddenly he has to respond. Explodes. <laughs> exactly, he explodes. <laughs> and you really can see from, from his tweets uh, how self-control failures yeah. look yeah. like. Uh, so the idea is that people differ in their ability for self-control, and this yeah. is what we call trade self-control. Uh, and these differences, obviously, so people with high trade self-control, so people who are better able to exert self-control, uh, are protected mm. from the adverse or from the negative uh, effects of self-control demands. And the interesting thing our study showed is that these people with high trade self-control also benefit more from sleep quality. What else can the individual do? To, to assist themselves. So another resilience factor we looked at is uh, commitment. So, so it's not entirely up to the individual to be committed to her or his job, but we know that, for example, people who have a high commitment towards their employee or their work uh, are, are more resilient towards these types of demands. And this has to do with the experience of flow. Mm. So, so the idea that people who, who uh, have a high commitment at work, they experience flow much more often. And, and by flow, I mean uh, experiences during work 
uh, which are inherently pleasant. So you work on a task, you look at your watch, and suddenly you, you think you just started, and suddenly you realize you spent three hours working on this task. And this is what uh, individuals experience as very pleasant mm. because they, they don't notice time passing. They, they uh, experience a lot of control during the task. They experience that the demands of the task fit well with their abilities. Uh, and, and this applies much or this happens much more often for people with high commitment. Uh, and therefore committed people are protected from, from the adverse effects of, of self-control demands. And, w and when we're thinking about that control, how do things, preventative things um, matter? Like for instance, I'm not gonna look at my social media for the next mm -hmm. hour while I do this work, or I'm gonna switch my phone off um, because I, I don't need those interruptions during this period. How, how do distractions or preventing distractions like that help? Excellent question, Steve. So, so uh, early research on, on self-controllability, on person-specific self-controllability, uh, was thinking that basically people with high-trade self-control are just have more resources. Yes. They have more muscle power, in, in <laughs> like <laughs> metaphorically yeah. speaking, to cope with these types of demands. By now, we know that this is not the case. Actually, people with high-trade self-control have better strategies to prevent themselves from exerting self-control. And these strategies are, for example, if you uh, have some distractions, rather do something preemptively, turn out your smartphone, turn out your email client, uh, rather than turn it on and then try to, to, to resist the distraction. Similarly, if you're on a diet, and you don't you want to refrain from eating chocolate it's, it's much easier not to buy the chocolate when you're in the supermarket rather than buying it having it in your shelf and then trying to resist to eat it that's what I'm doing wrong <laughs> <laughs> okay so the individuals themselves can do quite a lot then in terms of um, their commitments their self-control their sleep habits avoiding distractions all those are good examples what about organizations or companies how can they act to improve their staff's mental health and happiness yeah so so organizations can for uh, for example uh, grant um, individuals autonomy so mm -hmm. we know that job control so having uh, autonomy about how to do your work about uh, how to tackle or in which order to tackle work tasks or when to start and finish work can be very helpful in overcoming these demands uh, another aspect uh, which we have researched is leadership for example so leadership uh, can can also help to to uh, make people more resilient especially because uh, specific types of leadership such as for example very principle-based or value-based leadership uh, it basically takes self-control demands away because if you have principles you don't need to decide on a case-to-case -case basis and therefore you don't need to exert self-control in your decision-making yes. but rather what you do is you just follow the principle and you don't don't basically ask the principal, and that's why why uh, more uh, recent research focused on on uh, ethical or moral based leadership styles. So we did some research on servant leadership, where mm. uh, the leader considers her or himself a servant of 
uh, followers, employees, customer, uh, employees, customers, uh, and the organization itself. And this is a very strongly principle-based leadership, mm. and therefore employees are servant leaders. So if you have a decision whether you sell a certain financial pro product to a customer, uh, and basically you're not sure whether the customer will benefit from it or not, but on the other hand, you may get a bonus from selling it, then you basically have to decide it by yourself. So you yes. need to, to basically weigh out the benefits, the disadvantages. If you have a principle, you don't need to do this. You just follow the principle. And if the principle says, we don't sell life insurance to uh, customers who are above a certain age for right, certain right. reasons, yeah. then you just don't do it. Mm. And, and what about environmental factors? And, and by that I mean things like um, some companies and organisations have flexi hours. Um, some of them have um, perhaps more more um, more time that you're able to have breaks without being frowned upon, or they might have I don't know a half day off every two weeks. Certain, what I would call environmental things, which 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 help people feel more positive about work. Can those help? Yeah, those can definitely help. I think uh, one of the major uh, things we're talking about is teleworking. So so basically uh, working from home some days. Mm. Uh, and, and I think this can, of, of course, it can't be implemented in every profession. It's difficult mm. for a nurse to work from home. Of course, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but in those professions where it can be implemented, I think it can be very helpful. Uh, for individuals, uh, especially if people have the autonomy to decide how and when and in what way they, they can work. Yeah. Uh, but obviously this is a question of culture and trust. Uh, in many organizations, uh, uh, management doesn't trust employees to do the right mm -hmm. thing and that's why why these measures even though they can be implemented in much uh, on a much larger scale are not implemented on that scale yet. In terms of how organisations act to help their employees' happiness and well-being, is there any best practice out there? Are there any companies or, or organisations that you can cite as doing it pretty well and, ha and having some pretty good results? I mean, to be fair, we have the regular s uh, suspects from, from the IT industry, so we're talking about the Googles and Facebooks and Microsoft. For example, they have a very nice practice where they basically allow uh, their employees to spend, I think it's half a day or one day per week, I'm not entirely mm. sure, to work on their own projects. Of course, these projects uh, have to be beneficial for the organization to some degree, but basically they don't have any specific assignments. And this is a form of work which, which most probably doesn't necessitate self-control, because if you just work on a project which you inherently like, yes. then basically this is just, just a pleasure <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to yeah. do. So, so this is one one of the uh, practices uh, on the other hand we did uh, some uh, we did a project I think four or five years ago mm. with a German uh, electricity supplier where they had quite quite uh, uh, quite strong concerns about their workforce uh, mental health and well-being and uh, we started out with a survey where we assessed uh, uh, the mental health and well-being of the workforce and, and what, what it showed us that in some of their departments, burnout rates were around 50%. Mm. Uh, so quite, quite serious, quite severe. 
uh, and we introduced the leadership training as well as an individual emotion regulation training to mm. that company uh, and they were quite quite uh, satisfied with it and we could show that the trainings have some had s have had some effects on on employees well-being uh, however important to say is that at the same time the company also uh, basically uh, got got rid of some of their uh, leaders so so because okay. because in in that case and this was was a very brave step from my view they have realized that the change they want to introduce with some of their uh, leadership stuff is it's not possible there are some people in the workplace who feel that this concentration on mental health this concentration on well-being and happiness is a little bit well what we might call in the western world namby pamby it's mm -hmm. a bit of a, a western world pho phenomena you know we're not we're not starving uh, we're not deprived of money or housing or not everyone is anyway not everyone who's <laughs> suffering from mental ill health is and and the real world of poverty is where the real potential victims of mental health are surely not the average person in the workplace what, what, what would you say to that kind of anti um, well-being argument I mean it's an interesting view and the question is does it help <laughs> yeah. I mean I mean you can have uh, the opinion and, and the leaders I talked about a lot of them have the opinion uh, that basically their followers get enough money and they shouldn't complain and they should yeah, just do their job. The, kind of uh, the question is, is it helpful? If, if mm. your employee uh, is absent from work and we know that, that uh, burnout and depression account for uh, quite a large amount of absenteeism nowadays, does it help to you as a leader to say uh, they should basically put themselves together and arrive at work? Probably not, because hmm. people still will stay at home, so you will lose productivity. So you can have that opinion, but the question is, in today's time, is it helpful? Uh, and to be fair, uh, there are people who basically, employees who, who um, try to benefit from this wave by claiming to have some form of mental disease, mm. while just being unmotivated or not liking uh, their job, uh, but from my view and from my my experience in this field, uh, it's the minority of employees. So mm. we're not talking about a majority who is just lazy and doesn't want to work. Uh, and and uh, so so I think most people who claim to have some form of mental health impairment, uh, they claim it for for an actual reason. In Germany, if you uh, get on sick leave with burnout. Uh, with depression, I'm sorry. Uh, then we are talking about immediately six months of work. Really? So, so, so basically, if you're if you're an employee and you're diagnosed with with a form of depression in Germany, you miss work six months. So, for for so your organization is six months lost productivity and on top of that if you once you come back you don't come back full time so you come back gradually maybe starting with 20 30 percent and the issue is that that you can't reappoint the position because the person is ill so you need to hold the position you need to find uh, somebody who covers for the person and the time he or she is not mm. there so so we're talking about tremendous costs for organizations and that's one of the reasons why organizations focus on this topic so we're not saying we're just doing it for the people we are also we're doing it for the people but but by now organizations have realized that if they don't tackle these issues uh, it will uh, create major costs what's so important in the workplace 
about well-being that translates into success? How does a how does a, a happier, um, someone more settled in themselves, produce better profits, better um, output for a, an organization? I mean, we talked, for example, about self-control failures, and self-control fa failures are basically situations where people can't control themselves anymore. And imagine you have, as a, a consultancy, you have an important customer who's maybe a little bit challenging and you have an employee who bursts out and and basically tells to the customer that he or she is just stupid and he or she shouldn't annoy them I mean this has a an immediate impact on the customer relationship and and uh, I know it quite well so so we worked also with with uh, phone service companies I know it quite well how how basically customers let out their anger at, at poor phone service employees and listening to this call after call I mean it piles up and then you say something wrong to the wrong customer and then you have already an impact uh, the same goes for for medical stuff if you don't wash your hands diseases spread mm -hmm. again uh, we don't have uh, so so uh, when we do research it's it's mostly on a micro level so we don't look at uh, gross value added as a, as a function of okay. health and well-being uh, however we know that for example uh, good mental health or um, put it differently poor mental health is associated with less creativity less innovation uh, so you have a lot of indirect indicators which show that that uh, mental health has a positive impact on performance uh, and therefore I think organizations should should uh, invest in the mental capacities or mental health of their uh, workforces. What's your latest research um, in this field, Vlad? So we uh, did a study on the impact of commuting and self-control on work-related uh, engagement or uh, and performance. Uh, and what we showed there is that, for example, during the commute already, uh, individuals uh, get depleted from standing in traffic jams or if you use public transport being around uh, unfriendly uh, or annoying fellow passengers uh, and that these already these demands during the commute translate into impaired work engagement and productivity at work uh, and what we have also shown is that for employees for whom uh, basic psychological needs are satisfied which means for employees who can be autonomous at work who have a high competence at their work and who feel related to their work the impact of commuting demands uh, on on work related productivity uh, is not as strong as, as for people who whose needs are not satisfied which speaks to to organizations or which which basically suggests that organizations should satisfy employees basic psychological needs at work and we are not talking about drastical changes mm. we are talking about giving people some autonomy on how to work that out training people properly onboarding people properly so that they become experts in their job and also maintaining some form of good relationships among the workforce. Yeah. Well, Vlad, th thanks very much for taking the time to speak um, to Aston Means Business. It's been fascinating talking to you and you've given us some, some great insights into how uh, organisations and companies can keep 
their staff happier and healthier. Uh, good to speak to you. Um, this was the third in a series of 10 monthly podcasts from here at Aston Business School, where I've been interviewing some of the UK's top business academics. Our next podcast is due out on Tuesday the 18th of February, and this one's going to be with Dr Ali Bigdeli. Uh, he's a senior lecturer and a social professor in industrial service innovation in the Advanced Services Group at Aston Business School. And with uh, Dr. Bagdali, I'll be exploring the future of manufacturing and introducing listeners to how servitization is helping companies to transform their offering to customers. Aston Business School. It's not just business as usual. Why? Because Aston means business. Thanks for listening.